I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Episode 9 Performance My hand has almost healed. It's just a thick white sticking plaster now, no more than a resigned and constant itch. They tell me I can take it off soon, but I have to keep using the salve. In happier news, next week I start my new job at the Orion Building Corporation in-house editor and translator. Quite the salary, too. A small part of me wonders whether I'm ready to go back to the office, but it is a step up, and I've always been fond of architecture. As a child, I liked to imagine places, draw up maps of made-up streets and alleyways. It's a habit I've returned to in my convalescence, trying to sketch out the streets and landmarks of North London, testing my memory and the strength of my hand. Grey and stately Hampstead, the winding, tunnelling snake of Regent's Canal. It's harder than you'd think. I'm happy enough with the results when I first glance at them, but when I look back, my maps always contain a little too much of a skew. Impossible corners, spiralling streets as fluid and divergent as the black branches of the sycamores that spring up in the alcoves and between the cracks of the bricks. A single thick foreboding X, which can only be the cathedral on the hill where nobody goes. It's the loneliest part of a lonely routine. I wake, I walk to the mini-mart for bread and eggs, 
tossing away the ones that twitch beneath my fingers. I return to the apartment, try to find something on television that won't upset me, and I sleep. And I ask myself, how long can I keep doing this? How long can I stay in this filthy apartment in the stranger's quarter, walking the streets of this rainy and perilously steep city, raging against a skew, shrinking from its embrace, unable to let it swallow me entirely, or to make an escape? How long can you keep listening to this? And not help me? possible that the only idea in the universe worse than the suspicion that you are truly, helplessly alone is the thought that you might not be. No one is immune to hope. Even the proudest sociopath, the most unashamed misanthrope, must occasionally dream of stumbling into someone who truly understands them no matter how absurd and impossible that longing may be. As you can probably guess from my tone, I've started dating again. Dating in askew is difficult. People seem to change unexpectedly here. Their reactions can be hard to predict. Sometimes you can find yourself in the middle of a perfectly pleasant conversation, turn to signal the waiter, and when you look back, your dining partner is staring at you with a deranged and mocking leer upon their face, a toothy grin of utter hatred, staying fixed in place like that just for a second more before picking up the conversation again, as if you witnessed nothing. Sometimes the waiter brings unasked-for and horrid dishes to your table on a platter, and your date will laugh cheerfully and encourage you to tuck in. Tuck in, David, go on, aren't you hungry? Until you give up and close your eyes and swallow the struggling, writhing forkful in a single bite. Or perhaps you go home with someone, whose soft kisses linger on your lips as she presses you down against comfortable white bedsheets, and then she steps away, moving to the window with her back coyly turned to you, reaching up to unbuckle her dress, and next reaching up to peel back the folds of her skin. The language barrier, I'm certain, does not help. Tonight, however, tonight as I button up my shirt and force my hair into some semblance of order, tonight I feel that curious, inconvenient sense of possibility, of hope. She's waiting for me in the bar when I arrive. And when she glances up and catches my eye, presumably recognising me from my photo, she smiles. It's a little shocking. Not just the idea that she might actually be pleased to see me, the familiarity of the smile itself. Almost like she knows me, or she recognises something in me. I think I'm smiling back. I introduce myself, of course, 
order a glass of white wine and take a seat. Her name is Allegra. Like me, she's from elsewhere. Allegra works in construction. She's a planner for the Ministry of the Interior. I tell her boastfully that I am about to start a new job with Orion, and she instantly assumes I'm an architect, so I have to backtrack and embarrass myself, and make it clear that I know nothing whatsoever about what keeps the buildings of Askew standing day after day. She doesn't seem to mind my ignorance or my confusion. And when I explain that I'm a writer, a travel reporter on the side, she shows a keen and genuine interest in these recordings. I'm finding it surprisingly difficult to make a fool of myself. Allegra keeps talking. Eskew, for once, seems to be behaving itself. The bar remains still and unmoving. The drinks in the cabinet are not churning. The crowd of drinkers all around us are ignoring us. The jazz pianist is playing something ragged and atonal and nasty, a mockery of romantic blues music, a deluge of notes smattering up and down the scale all at once, as if he has too many fingers and all of them are hitting the keys at the same time. But I'm accustomed to ignoring worse than that. Allegra lives alone, down near the seagull keys, at the top of a black glass tower block that watches over other glass tower blocks built hastily to accommodate the newfound fashionability of the river. It's like staring into a forest of mirrors, she says. Glass reflections before you, and behind them, the deeper, darker reflection of the river itself. You can sit out on your balcony to watch the sunset, staring out over a skew, trying to make sense of the shattered fragments of street lamp and billboard and tree poiled together from a million angles, a distorted kaleidoscope of the city. And then the sunset hits the glass from the west, and suddenly it seems as if there's fire spreading through the forest, an unstoppable tide of blinding hot light swallowing up frame after frame, until there's nothing but fire, and it's as if Askew itself has fallen. I like it, she says, with a self-deprecating shrug of her shoulders. It makes me feel like I might not have to wake up and go to work tomorrow. It's a good survival tactic, I reply. She tilts her head and looks curiously up at me. What's yours? she asks. What's your survival tactic? I have the sudden peculiar sense that we're having a real conversation. About the jazz pianist. About what's all around us about the things we're trying our hardest not to notice as we sit here together in a skew. I have to be careful what I say. I've made a habit of forgetting, I tell her simply, and it makes her laugh, but I press on, insisting. I used to think it was a function of living here, or perhaps just growing older, but the longer I'm in a skew, the more I realise that I'm the one doing it. Every day I wake up alone, I set out into a city of ceaseless noise and distraction and spectacle, 
I come home. And when I fall into bed alone, I do my best to forget what I've undergone, what I've seen. If I couldn't forget, I'm not sure I'd be able to keep going. Allegra nods sympathetically. That's what happens when you drink, she says. Chemically, I mean. When you black out and can't remember what happened, it's the alcohol literally inhibiting your ability to make memories. Quite clever if you found a way to do that sober. We should probably have another bottle then, I suggest, and do our best to forget some more. She smiles, runs a single finger across the rim of her glass to produce a light singing note, and says, Shall we go somewhere else? I can't stand the piano player here. All through our second date, in a restaurant near the Keys, I find myself holding back the desperate urge to ask her, Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Are you hearing what I'm hearing? Is askew everything to you that it is to me? But there are so many ways this could go wrong. She could laugh at me. She could stare at me as if I'm mad. The city could notice what's happening here. And so we chat about safe and boring things. Our favourite restaurants, television shows, the way the golden light plays upon the river here at night, as if it's dancing, as if it's alive. Allegra is teasing, mocking, arch, and apparently in complete sympathy with me. Am I still alone here? What happens next is very possibly my fault. I am full of hope, charmed enough to already be daydreaming about where this might go, desperate to share something meaningful with someone, with anyone, with specifically Allegra, for the first time in a very long time. And so I book two tickets for a new ballet that's starting at the Diamond Theatre. The Diamond Theatre could be a second-rate venue in any city in Europe. Travel to Paris or Lisbon or Prague, and I'm convinced you'd find the same stuffy building on the corner of a once-prosperous street, plaster cherubs dangling over plaster colonnades, a lobby that's coated from top to bottom in fake red velvet, stained with a thousand spilled glasses of wine. Old posters of gurning stars in performances that have both long since been forgotten. Allegra is there before me again, waiting, leaning on the bar, with the expression of someone who's been admiring the fixtures for slightly too long. I'm sorry, I begin, but she steps forward and kisses me smartly on the cheek before I can make up any excuse. Come on, she says. I got you a beer. Time to take our seats. We grab our drinks, pelt up the staircase, and step through the threshold into the darkness of the auditorium. The house lights are already down. 
A single bright spotlight focuses on the centre of the stage, and the thick velvet curtains masking the backdrop from view. We shuffle quietly through the silent audience, and take our seats in the very second row. We sit, glance comfortably at each other, and face forward. There's silence. An absolute silence. None of the usual shuffling of feet or rustling of crisp packets. Even the noise of the street traffic seems to have died away. And then, as if they've been waiting for us, the curtains part. A line of performers stands upon the stage, their backs turned, their heads bowed, costumed in old-fashioned suits and ivory lace dresses. It's a startling effect, almost funereal, and it's made all the stranger because each figure is standing on the very tips of their toes, swaying softly back and forth, like a row of bodies hung from invisible nooses. A single violin strikes up from somewhere unseen. It's a madcap peddler's music, jagged and staccato, playing rapidly upon all of the wrong notes. I shuffle my feet. It's beginning to feel as if we've entered something. One by one, from left to right, the performers turn. I know I've seen that face before. In the commemoration gallery, in the Greyfriars Hospital, in the corners of my eye. That white chalk skin, that wide and grinning mouth, those hollowed-out, oily swirling eyes that lead to somewhere else entirely. A face without substance, crudely sketched onto the darkness behind it, its features inky and fluid. That face, replicated in a dozen identical faces, all of them staring down at me from the stage. And as I glance quickly to my left and right, I know that the figures seated all around us, filling every row and every chair, are staring ahead with the same void-like eyes, the same patient, hungry smile. Not people. A facsimile of people. An approximation. A performance. And then I feel Allegra's fingers, soft and living and kind, press into mine and squeeze hard, the nails digging in, and I know that she is seeing exactly what I am seeing. At the very least, that I am not alone in this. The dance begins. We watch in silence. The performers gather into a circle. Their arms entwine. Their fingers twist. Their feet kick higher than feet should kick. They dance on their tiptoes, feet banging down against the boards, making the stage quiver. A chalk-faced performer in an old wedding dress falls into the arms of a chalk-faced performer in a ragged dinner jacket. They kiss and contort, their faces burrowing into each other's faces, converging and merging until there's only one stretching fleshy head atop two bodies that continue to caper. 
three backing dancers race to the front of the stage, forming into a circle that begins wide and tightens as they spin around and around, clockwise and counterclockwise, hands clutching wrists and then chests, merging into chests. Finally, their mouths turning up to the sky, extended to the heavens in a silent cry of distress or exultation, the circumference of their jaws widening in agonised silence, until there's only one gaping throat at the centre of six kicking legs and nothing else. Something that is mostly a face crawls from stage right to stage left to fill the stillness between arias. And as the movements reach a demented kind of crescendo, all of the performers swing inwards from their own individual dances, forming a circle that grows tighter and tighter, swallowing each other up in a single mass of black cloth and white silk and tormented, howling flesh. When they come apart again, not one dancer is possessed of a single chalk-fleshed face or four limbs, but each deconstructed, broken individual continues to dance and cavort in its own peculiar manner. Allegra and I watch, our hands clasped tightly in the darkness between us, and wait desperately for this to end. I don't remember how long we're watching for, or all of the awful shapes the performers take on. I do remember hearing Allegra's voice in my ear, quiet and hoarse and shaking with restraint. All she says is, I'm so sorry, as if she thinks she's responsible for this. I glance across to look at her, but she's staring dead ahead, her head cocked, apparently absorbed in the performance. The dance, marked only by the clacking of the performer's shoes and the lonely screech of the violin, goes on. Bodies winnow their way into bodies, fusing cloth and flesh and bone. Bodies prize themselves apart. And as the ballet of the Diamond Theatre goes on, each individual forms and reforms into new dimensions of skin and eyes and tearing fingernails protruding from cheeks and palms. We watch, and we watch, and we pray to be deadened to the horror. It's a sleep that never comes. But then all at once I realise that something has changed because the dancers have drawn back, vanishing into the vague darkness beyond the stage and there is light in my eyes. A single dazzling spotlight, shining down from the rafters upon Allegra, upon me. I'm looking wildly around, trying to get a sense of what's happening, marked out in a pool of golden light against the darkness. All around us, the audience remains seated, gazing placidly forwards with empty eyes, and then their heads begin to turn, quite comfortably, in unison. Their clownish chalk faces twisted right around upon their necks. The clapping, when it comes, seems to emanate from elsewhere, somewhere deeper in the Diamond Theatre, beneath our feet and yet from all around. Allegra is already on her feet. I stumble up as well, although every fibre of my being is crying out to stay seated, to shrink back into the shadows, to remain unseen pointless, of course. Askew made this for us. 
Their hands are visible now, long, slender white fingers extruding from dark sleeves, the palms slapping lifelessly against one another. Clap. Clap. We have to get out of here. Without thinking, I vault up over the ghastly figure in front of me, stumbling into the aisle, as I feel Allegra doing the same, thinking perhaps that somewhere backstage there'll be a door or a fire escape. But then Allegra shouts, in a mixture of confusion and revulsion, No! The performers are coming back onto the stage, walking in a single line, arm in arm, ready for their applause. Their masks are our faces. The audience are on their feet. As I turn, I can see hundreds of bone-white figures, in the stalls, in the boxes, above in the dizzying heights of the gallery. The cast are standing over us upon the boards, clapping with their palms tilted upwards against each other, grinning down at us with faces that are not their own. We've become the performance. Allegra is standing beside me, caught in the spotlight. I can feel her anxious breath rise and fall as she turns, taking in her audience. Our hands entwine once again. We turn and we run, past the rows of figures applauding in perfect, awful unison, through the threshold and down the stairs, out into the hideous red velvet lobby of the Diamond Theatre, through the glass doors and out into the cool air of askew. Once we're clear, we slow our pace, marching downhill in the middle of the street, glancing only occasionally back over our shoulders. The doors of the Diamond Theatre are open and empty. Halfway down the street, I almost feel capable of saying something, but then Allegra's hand squeezes meaningfully at mine. She appears quite calm, but her eyes are looking upwards, towards the first and second story apartments overlooking the road. I follow her gaze and keep to her pace. Our audience has followed us. Chalk-white, grinning masks stare down at us from the windows. Every face, whether it's hung with curtains of long black hair or a short crop, is beginning to look a little more like us. And the violin is playing again, from somewhere just behind my ear. We keep walking, keep holding on to each other, staring calmly ahead as if nothing at all is wrong. On every block, the doors on either side of the street open in silence, and the spectators file out onto the pavement to watch our procession. And then somehow, we're climbing up the steps to my apartment. Fumbling with my keys, I get the door unlocked. We enter and bolt it shut again behind us. There's no sense of relief, no moment of breathless laughter now that we're home. I think we both know Askew too well for that. Allegra looks tired and frightened. She goes to peer through the living room blinds and says quietly, They're lining the alleyway now. There's some on the roof, some in the houses across the street. 
I go to join her at the window. She's quite right. The street outside is filled with our faces, replicated in chalk white skin and oily black whirlpools for eyes. They don't seem to intend to harm us, at least not immediately. They simply watch, carrying out their collective purpose in patient silence. The problem is that they're multiplying, and the more of them there are, the closer they're standing to us. There are silent figures on the steps leading up to my apartment, tapping their feet against the stone, waiting for us to join in the dance. They're outside the front door. They're gazing back at us from the distorted glass of the window. We must remain calm. There are rules to this, of course. There are always rules. They've stopped, Allegra says uncertainly after a moment. They're not coming any closer. It's the door, I reply, with a confidence that I most certainly don't feel. Doors and walls are important here, I think. No matter how things change, no matter how bad things get, the doors give access and the walls stop anything from getting through. She shakes her head. But the walls move, she says, and we're looking at each other as if we're speaking aloud for the first time in our lives. Even if they can't get in, she says, we can't stay here. She runs her hands through her hair. She looks exhausted, like someone who's been keeping up a facade for far too long. This is my fault, she says. I said I hated the piano player. It hurt me. I booked the tickets, I reply. I brought us into another of its traps. I should have been prepared. It's always something new, she says quietly. And it's always the same. I hate it. We share the silence for a moment, before she turns back to the blinds and prizes them open once more. More of them now, she says with an air of finality, turns to me and screams. I spin around. There are faces in the walls, grinning masks bulging out of the plaster and the wallpaper, mingling white dust with flesh. There are faces in the ceiling and the curtains and the churning glass of the window. And then our audience is in the apartment with us. They're in the kitchen, standing in the shadows behind us, smiling blandly as if supremely entertained by our panic. They're in the living room and the hallway and standing on my stair. The violin is shrieking its way to a crescendo. Allegra looks at me. I look at her. And once more I slip my sweaty hand back into her head. It feels comfortable there. It feels connected to something. We dance. And we bow. And then the clapping begins again, as hard and heavy as a Scovian rain, and we bow once more, staring down at our toes before rising up to be confronted by a sea of awful faces. 
and we bow once more, our final encore, and when we straighten up, we're alone in the apartment. We rush to the windows to find that the street outside is empty. We're no longer being watched. And we stare at each other with something like relief, with something like suspicion or anticlimax. Was that really all it took? We stare at each other with weariness, a great familiar weariness, because we both know that something like this has come for us many times before, and will come many times again. It's the morning now, about a quarter to seven. The watchers of the Diamond Theatre are still nowhere to be seen. Allegra is still here. She's lying in my bed, her back turned to me, her hair spread across the pillow. I'm recording from my study as quietly as I can with the door open, waiting for her to wake. Because she will wake, I am sure of it. Whether in a minute or an hour, she'll stir and sit up, brushing her hair back from her forehead. And as she finds my eyes and smiles at me, I'll smile back at her, and whatever new horrors Askew has for us, we'll be prepared to face them together. But I also can't help wondering whether she'll remain lying there like that, deathly still and unresponsive, until I panic or lose patience and rush to her side, turning her over, and she'll be staring up at me with hollow black eyes and chalk-white skin and a grotesque grinning mouth. And then the clapping will begin again. Just another trick this city's played upon me. Just another twisted semblance of the life I'll continue to long for, and continue to lack. But you'll wake. I'll leave you here, happy, hopeful, and afraid, in a moment that cannot possibly last. Be with you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.